uh, invite you to, oh, if you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you're turning there, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. We thank you for the scriptures, which are a true and solid foundation upon which we can stand and build our lives on the solid rock. And so, Father Lord, as we uh, look at a well-known passage this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding, give us wisdom, open our eyes to see what you've called us into, help us see Jesus this morning clearly, and maybe be transformed because of it. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we are in our text this morning. And uh, as by way of introduction, let me just say that there's a danger in preaching well-known and well-loved stories from the Old Testament. For a lot of people who have been around or a part of the church for a long time, when it comes to stories we know, stories that we love, stories we're familiar with, there's a danger when a preacher stands up to preach them. For example, imagine the story of David and Goliath. You've heard preached all your life one way, and I stand up and say it a different way. Or imagine that you hear the story of David and Goliath, and it conjures up in mind uh, memories of nostalgia for you, or some kind of uh, memory of a loved one, or a loved, uh, loved time in your life. And then, uh, so preachers need to, uh, when they stand up to preach God's word, we're always true to the text. But we need to remember that there is danger in preaching well-known passages. Uh, On the one hand, there's a danger that exists uh, from a kind of a pressure on a preacher who would stand and preach a familiar text by way of means of saying it in a more fresh way, in a new and invigorating way that uh, can lead to wild interpretation or applications. Um, But today we come to one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian for more than five minutes to be acquainted with this story. The story ranks up there in most minds of, the, uh, of Christians, along with the story of Abraham and offering Isaac, or Moses parting the Red Sea, or Isaiah seeing the Lord in the temple high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. But here we are this morning. The Lord has providentially arranged for us to be in 1 Samuel 17 this morning. I wonder, have you considered the role of the Christian church in the world today? Should the church be focused on the physical needs or spiritual needs? Should the church be concerned with politics or should it sit idly by? Should the church be inwardly focused or outwardly focused? You see, there's many in the, in the culture today that would like to tell the church what the mission of the church is. And as people of the church, people of the world, we must always get our mission from the story from the story of the scriptures. So with that, I have three points. This is a longer text today, 58 verses. Um, I had some of them already read. Uh, but let me give you the three categories, the three broad brush strokes that we'll do, if you will, um, through our time together. The first is we're going to walk through the story. We're going to walk through the story of David and Goliath. And then we're going to weave in the gospel into the story of David and Goliath. And then we're going to talk about waging war in our own day. So let's begin walking through the story, uh, the story picks up where we left off last week with uh, David being anointed king in private and then Saul beckoning him to come into play to relieve uh, the spirit of torment, the spirit of depression that had settled in upon him after the Holy Spirit left 
him. Now we find, not sure how long, uh, how much time has went by, but as Bill read for us this morning, verses one, th- or not Bill, but uh, Philip read for us this morning, uh, we're met with an enemy. We're met with an enemy of the people of God, and Goliath is somewhere between uh, seven to nine feet tall, and the right of the story goes to great lengths to describe this man. Like, think about in verses five through seven in our text this morning, he, he, he says this, he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Right? You see, when you get to a passage like this, especially in the story of Samuel, uh, any time the, the, the author begins to elaborate on something where he hadn't previously elaborated, this is the first time in the book of Samuel where the author slows down the story. He zooms in, if you will, on this enemy of the people of God named Goliath. And he's wanting you to do, and he's doing that because he wants you, the reader, to see exactly who the people of God are up against. He wants you to notice and take, uh, take note of the fierceness of the enemy. But then we turn to verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Now David was the son of uh, a prophetite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Again, as the reader, you already know who this David is. But he's reminding you, like, yes, that David from the previous chapter, that David who has just been anointed king is back in the story. In the days of Saul, the man had, was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle of uh, Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. Notice that the author is wanting you to see uh, the politics of the moment. He's wanting you to take note of like, hey, listen, the three oldest sons are there on the battle with Saul, but not David. And by the way, David's the youngest. And he tells you why he's not on the battle in verse 15. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to, his David, to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephod of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Notice how the author is pausing, right? He's, he's trying to interweave this story for you so that you will see something of uh, importance, right? He's wanting you to notice David's not on the battlefield, but his brothers are. But he keeps going back to this reference, right, that, that for 40 days there's this Philistine coming forward, taking his stand. And then he cuts back to Jesse, telling David to, to take them some, some food. And then it cuts back to Saul, is standing and fighting with the Philistines. Look at verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep of the keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle, out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper, the baggage, ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But notice this time something's different. This time, David heard him. 
You see, David is now introduced for the first time to the conflict of what's going on. The idea is that he's been coming back and forth, but this particular time is a moment when he comes and he hears for the first time this Goliath, this man from Gath, this giant of a man, speak out his cry against God Almighty. So notice all of this so far, the author is merely setting the stage of the story that's about to come. Look in verse uh, 24. We begin to see the reactions of the people to, Philistine of, to this Philistine of Gath. Look at verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw him, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, remember that's his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now pause for a moment right there because there's a little bit of an echo of a story that's happened previously in the book of Genesis. When you have the story of brothers looking down on their younger brother with contempt, with anger, right? does this not remind you of the story of Joseph? It's, it's supposed to. Because, you see, Eliab would have been there when David was crowned uh, an anointed king of Israel. He would have been there, right? Because he was passed over first. And so he's angry with David. And he says to them, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He says, I've merely asked a question. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So you see the reactions of the people, right? So the Philistine has come, Goliath has come. He's issued the call for a champion to come out of Israel's ranks to face him one-on-one like a man, and everyone cowers. They're cowering so much that they begin to talk about like, hey, did you hear? The king said if someone will go out and fight and win, well, then he will make them rich, right? He'll give them their da- his daughter to marry. He'll make their family free, right? They've been free from taxes uh, in, the, in the city or in the kingdom of Israel. And David hears this and he says, is that, is it, basically, is it true? What will happen to the one who shuts this dude up? And his brother gets angry with him. And he says, he just turns away from him, asks another one the same way. Right, you see the reactions. Again, the, the, the tension is building. No one will come and face this man, Goliath. And now you get David, who enters the picture, sees the call for the first time, and begins to wonder, what will happen? What will happen? Look at verse 31. We see that he, the, the, the picking of the armor here. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go down and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Notice, uh, David says, hey, I'll, I'll take care of this guy. I ain't worried about it. And Saul's like, nah, nah, we're looking for somebody, but that somebody is definitely not you. You're just, you're just, a, you're just a child, you're a, you're a boy. And, and David says, hey, hey, verse 34, it's in there. He said, hey, 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 your servant used to keep sheep for his flock, for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. 
If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Notice in David's reply here, he's, he's un, unworried about the results of what's about to happen. He's unworried that uh, maybe he gets killed. As a matter of fact, he sees this as nothing else than a shepherd saving the sheep. He sees this as nothing else than uh, just rescuing. This is another day in the field, he says. He says, this Philistine man is just like one of these untamed animals. Verse 37, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped the sword over his armor. And he tried to go, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David puts them off. You see, in in a moment here, uh, think about just for for a moment uh, what the king was supposed to do. You remember from 1 Samuel chapter 8? When the people approached Saul, or Samuel, when the people approached Samuel asking for a king, what is it that they wanted? They wanted a king like all the other nations had. But more than that, they wanted a king who would what? Fight their battles for them. And here we have a king, only he's not fighting the battle. Not only is he not fighting the battle, but he wants to clothe David in his kingly armor. And David's not having it. He takes them off. And then we see the, 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 everything coming to a head in this story, in, uh, starting in verse 40. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now stop right there. A lot of times when we think and hear and read and hear the story preached, we often think of like a child's play toy, uh, right? Like one of them like, like things you just let go. That's not what David would have had here. This was a real weapon of war. We see this in uh, Judges chapter 20. It's a real weapon uh, that could actually be used to do great damage. And so he grabs five smooth stones. It would have been about the size of, um, uh, we often think of like little tiny pebbles, like taking down mighty Goliath. It probably would have been the size of a baseball to the size of a softball. But anyway, he takes both of these and, he, and he, he approaches the Philistine in verse 40. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, his disdain, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He said, who is this pretty boy y'all sending out here? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? You come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come with me, to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into my hand. This is the, the highlight of the entire passage, by the way. You have the Philistine who says, you know what, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take care of this light work. And David's like, no, 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 no. You 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 misunderstood the whole situation because he says, This battle is the Lord's. 
Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The highlight in this story, right, remember, like I said last week, and I've said a couple times throughout the sermon series, is that everything in the book of Samuel should be anchored back to Hannah's prayer, back to Hannah's song in chapter 2. Remember there that the, 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 uh, Hannah had prayed, or uh, she had said that it would be not by might that a man would prevail. And that's exactly what David says here. He, like, it, all odds were stacked against David. Right? This is one of the reasons why we love this story. We, we, we are, especially as Americans, we, we come to this story because we love the underdog. And we say, look, look at David. He's the underdog in the story. But that's not David's perspective. David, again, sees this Philistine as a man who is just a man. Worse than that, he's like a, an untamed animal of the wild who needs put in his place. And so he kills him. He slings a stone, takes the, takes the giant's uh, sword, and cuts off the giant's head. So the question you might be asking is, well, what in the world do we do with this? What do we do with the story of David and Goliath? Is it a story about slaying our own giants? Giant of depression in your life, the, the giant of discouragement in your life. Well, the story of David and Goliath, apart from Jesus, means nothing to us personally and really. Sure, it makes a great story of courage and the spirit of the underdog, but outside of connecting it to Christ, it cannot be more than just a story. And here at Calvary, we are Christians, and so the story of David and Goliath is a Christian story. For all the scriptures have as the main point the story of who God is and what God is doing in the world. One of the central themes of the book of Samuel is leadership. And time and time again, the story will put before you someone who is called to lead, and you get to see how do they react. How do all the characters react? Consider Saul. He was the king of Israel. He was supposed to be the one to destroy the Philistines and fight Israel's battles on their behalf. Similarly, Adam in the garden, the one to whom the command was given to not eat of the fruit of the tree, he was supposed to fight on behalf of his wife Eve. You see, it was Adam's job when he seen the serpent coming in the garden. It was his job to cut off the serpent's head, much like we've seen David cut off the giant's head. But he failed. Likewise, Saul failed here to, to, to stop the enemies of God. But David was not a man like Adam, and David was not a man like Saul. Instead, David was a man who took courage, acted bravery, uh, acted in, in bravery. But what exactly was it that propelled him to do such a thing? What exactly did David take courage in? Go back to verse uh, 45. Because here we see, like, what, what is it that caused this young boy to rise up? Look at verse 45. It says, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. You see, what David uh, took refuge in, what he trusted in, is the faithfulness of God to deliver his people. 
That's what God was, that was the, that is what David was trusting in. Now, we might be tempted to rush ourselves into the story. We might see ourselves in, in our day, in our, in our, in our land, uh, that there are giants all around, and we need to be brave like David. We need to be courageous like David. We need to have the faithfulness of David to rise up and crush the giants of our day. But in order to properly place ourselves in this story, and to properly place this story in our context today, we must first weave together the pattern of all the scriptures into the proper places. You see, the Israelites here face a threat that looked like it was going to take them out. Right For 40 days, this Philistine came out and boasted day and night, day and night, over and over again. They looked like this would, might be the end of the line for them. They're faced with an impossible situation, impossible to overcome. Their king is too cowardly to fight on their behalf. What will they do? But this story is not new to the scriptures. As a matter of fact, this is a story like their fathers, who were pinned between an incoming Egyptian army behind them and the Red Sea blocking the escape in front of them. This is like their fathers, who snuck into the promised land to spy it out and seeing the enemies thought the tax too great for them to accomplish. And the Old Testament, over and over and over again, is filled with story after story of this exact thing playing out. Will God be faithful or not? But in every instance, God the Father raises up a Savior. He raises up a Deliverer, someone who would stand on their behalf to lead the people of God to victory. For every Egyptian army, there was a Moses to split the waters. For every fearful report from the spies, there was a Joshua and a Caleb to boldly proclaim God's faithfulness. This is the theme of the Old Testament. Like, this is how you should read the Old Testament. But you say, why, is, why are the stories like this? Why are the stories written, written in such a way that this is how we should read them? What do the stories of Moses and of Joshua and of David accomplish? Each story these ones and all the little stories as well, was looking for the one who had been promised from the beginning. Each story was looking for the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the one to restore the presence of God, the creator, with man his creation. Each story, in a sense, served as a shadow, but a shadow which progressively became clearer and clearer with every story. Imagine you're standing uh, uh, on, on the corner of a building, uh, and you're on the corner, and you can see this shadow of somebody walking towards you. At first, the shadow is quite large, and for the most part, it just looks like a giant moving black blob of a shadow. But as the person gets closer and closer to the corner of the building, you begin to make out the finer details of the person coming. You're able to gauge roughly how tall someone might be. You can gauge if they're carrying something in their hands. You can even tell how fast they are moving and what type of pace they are keeping. Are they running? Are they moving slowly from knee pain? Are they leisurely out for a Sunday stroll? All of this becomes more and more clear as what happens as they get closer and closer. You see, every story in the Old Testament is like a shadow on the ground of someone moving towards us. And each story builds on the other. They're not disconnected, but rather giving a little bit more light a little bit more information, a little bit more clarity about the one who is coming. It was a number of years ago, nearly a decade or so ago, I, I heard a, a well-known pastor preacher uh, stand up before church. And, uh, he was preaching this text, and the whole impetus of his text was, friends, you're not David. And that's true. 
If you've read this story as you being the hero, you being the, the person uh, to, to, to stand against all odds, to stand up against the giant when everyone else cowers, and if that's the ultimate thing that you take from this story, then you've read it wrong. Because the story is not about you. The story is about who? It's about who God is and what God is doing. To give that a name, it's a story about Jesus Christ. You see, David shows us the type of man who was to come. Jesus sh- he shows us that Jesus would be the one who would ultimately destroy our greatest giants in life. The message of the Bible is not that we are called to save the world. The message of the Bible is that we have a Savior who is saving the world, and his name is Jesus. You see, the message of the story of David and Goliath is not that we are David, but that we have a David on our side. Jesus is the better David. You see, if we are to read ourselves into the story at all, we should not read ourselves in as the heroic or the hero of the story. Who do, who do we become in the story? Well, as Christians, we're the people of God. And the people of God in, in, in this story was, was who? The cowering Israelites before their enemy. So if we're going to read ourselves into the story at all, we are like them. Fearful, an enemy which we cannot overcome, but that we have Jesus on our side. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in knowing that our greatest enemy has been defeated. You see, as sure as Goliath was laying on the ground and as sure as his head was cut off and detached from his body, we know that our greatest enemy lays on the ground with his head cut off as well. You see, our enemy of sin, death, and Satan have been defeated. It leaves us in a place where God's righteous judgment and wrath, which stood opposed to us, has landed, not on us, but on Christ. It means as the people of God, we have been given victory. What happens after David kills Goliath? What happens after the enemy has been defeated? Did the once quivering people of God say, whew, glad I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we can return to our lives as normal. Of course not. What happens next? Look at verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, and so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam uh, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put it, his armor in his tent. You see, the people of God immediately give chase to the enemy. Now, why did they do that? What changed? Like fundamentally, the only thing that's changed is there's one dead Philistine. But now we no longer see the, uh, the people of God quivering in fear or hesitation. What changed is that they realized in that moment the victory was already theirs. Not because of anything that they had done, but because of what David had done. They know that what David has done has, brought, has brought, bought for them a decisive victory. They knew that there was no way they could lose now. The same is true of us today. The victory for us has been won through the cross and resurrection of Christ. The snake has been bound up. And our job, the mission of the church then, is to what? That's to do exactly what the people of God do in this story. To give chase to the remaining elements of the enemy and to plunder his camp. 
You see, we plunder the enemy's camp as we proclaim the victory of Christ and call other people to come to this great king, to submit to his reign. And this is not always easy. It's always a battle. You will find yourselves in battle, facing hostility, scorn of others, but like the people of God in this story who shout for joy and pursue the enemies, we can have faith because of our champion, Jesus Christ. Church history teaches us that there's a word for, for a label for uh, the church that exists in this time. A church that uh, continues to plunder the enemy's camp and to wage war on the darkness. And then the church, the, uh, in church lingo, they would call this the church militant. The church militant. The church militant summarizes a significant theme throughout all the scriptures. You see, the church on this side of heaven is engaged in spiritual conflict, spiritual war, whether we like it or not. This has been the true reality since the fall. When God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity is a strong word there, right? It it conjures up uh, deep hostility, deep hatred. We are sworn enemies. Listen, especially if you're a Christian, we are sworn enemies of sin and of Satan. We do not live in a time when we can let our guard down, kick our feet up. And take our rest. You see, if the church is not militant and is not on the battle, it will be conquered. The decisive victory has already been won, church. But we must continue to wage war in our own day. Christ came into this world to lead an invasion. And the effect of his people was to topple Satan. The effect of his work was to topple Satan, the former ruler of this world. He established what? He established the kingdom of God, right? We just went over this in Sunday school that uh, Jesus began all of his public ministry. You can look at the, all the beginnings of the gospel. Jesus starts with this message. Repent and believe the gospel of God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heaven is invading earth in this moment through the work of Christ and it continues on through the work of the church today. It's through the preaching of the word that strongholds are cast down, captives are freed, and many come to faith in Christ. I was asked this week what the, what the mission of the church was uh, via text, uh, and I texted back. I said, the mission of the church is to be a demonstration of the saving reign of Jesus Christ in all aspects of life. That demonstration means we are constantly pushing into enemy territory. But as the passage has already taught us, we're not relying on swords or the weapons of men. But we're relying on the finished work of Christ. Paul teaches in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So church, we are at war. We are not at rest. We're at war like the, like the Israel people after the slaying of uh, Goliath are, were at war and pursuing the enemies. In other words, the church is uh, basically just a good military operation. And as good military operations always have a headquarters, rules of engagement, and a cause worth fighting for. I'll end here. It begins with a headquarters. All good military operations have a solid headquarters, a place where decisions are made, a place where regrouping happens, a place where we're reminded of the mission that we're on. For this reason, we do not withdraw from the outside world since we're called to bear witness to Jesus in the world. 
and to show how the gospel transforms every area of life from day to day. Like, if we begin to think of ourselves as a church which merely comes into the headquarters to isolate itself, to secure itself from the rest of the world, then we've lost the mission. Our church building is not a fortress for Christians to hide in. It's a training ground for Jesus' followers who go out and live in the world as he did. This is why understanding what we do here week to week every Sunday morning is so vitally important. The preaching, the singing, Lord's Supper, baptism, praying, fellowship, all of that is uh, meant to be, this is meant to be a headquarters. A headquarters for what? For the military operation that we're invading the world. The light has come. And we come, we regroup, and then we go out into the world. But also all good military operations have rules of engagement. How they will act and conduct themselves in war. You see, we're not called to engage the world as if people were enemies to be conquered. You see, this is where the analogy of the people of God who are slaying the Philistines as they were physically chasing them, that's not us. Loudspeakers, picket signs, angry political speeches are not how the world will be convinced that Jesus is king and that his kingdom offers an entirely new way of life. Instead, Jesus says, we will be known by our good deeds, especially our love for one another. Now, this, this can't mean that we become best friends with the world. Just as Jesus' own life showed, there is much that is wrong in the world that needs to be challenged or outright changed. A church that looks a great deal like the rest of the world has probably lost almost all qualities that once pointed to Christ. They are, regardless of their name, thoroughly unchristian. So what is the way forward? How do we act? What are our rules of engagement with the world? What does it look like to be salt and light in the world? And the answer for us is faithful presence, right? Faithful presence means living in every sphere of life as committed citizens to Jesus' kingdom. In other words, you become the kind of person at work, at home, in the marketplace, in every other aspect of life by trying to act and be like Jesus. Imagine shopping like Jesus was the king of an eternal kingdom, instead of shopping like you were the king in a world of fashion. Or imagine showing up to work early, staying late, and serving others selfishly all day without grumbling or complaining. Imagine seeing your jobs wherever it is that you work, not just as a paycheck, but as a valuable way of contributing to the various needs of the world. Imagine seeing politics, not just as a way to vote for your favorite values, or to stem the cultural tide, but as a way to bring about positive, although limited, good in society for those around you. All of these things are characteristics of someone who knows that Jesus is currently reigning, and that their lives reflect this reality. The scriptures say that this kind of living, this kind of faithful presence of the gospel is one of the clearest signs that we actually believe ourselves that Jesus is king. Finally, all good military operations have underpinning it a cause worth fighting for. In other words, behind every good military operation is a belief system that will hold it when spirits are down. A cause worth fighting for that encourages it to keep going when things get hard. Friends, the things that makes the church militant get up in the morning is knowing that Jesus is Lord. 
We must must never forget that Jesus has already conquered on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ faced death, but it did not hold him down. The curse could not keep him in the grave because he is perfectly righteous. We are merely fighting the last skirmishes of an already won spiritual war. Our Lord has driven Satan from his former place, and he will soon push him into the abyss and all those who follow him forever. Sure, Satan is still a dangerous enemy, seeking uh, those whom he may devour, but he has suffered a crippling death blow. There is reason to be sober and vigilant, yet there is nothing to fear. Victory is already in hand. So what is the cause we're fighting for? Brothers and sisters, be encouraged in the Lord today that we are fighting from a place of already having the victory. Like we don't, like think about it, we don't fight and we don't push back against the cultural sins of our day, against cultural uh, the darkness in our day because we're, we're, we're afraid we might lose. I'm going to say that again. We don't push back cultural sins and cultural darkness in our day because we think that somehow uh, it's going to be worse off for our grandkids and great-grandkids. We fight against all of that because it's against the kingdom of our God. We fight against all of that because we realize that Jesus Christ has already won. We fight from a place of joy. And as all mil- good military operations know, some, some of you will need to play defense. Like some of you will need to rise up and point out errors in the church and be like, that's not right. And take us back to scripture. Some of you will need to be on the offense, out there on the front lines of the darkness, pushing it back. Most of us will have to suffer. The scriptures are abundantly clear on this. And all of us must walk in a way that is countercultural to the rhythm of the kingdom of this world. But we walk to the rhythm of a new kingdom and a new king. A king that loves us. A king that has given us great joy and great hope. So friends, be encouraged. You're not David, but you have a David on your side. You no longer have to be cowering on the, uh, on the sidelines like the people of God before David entered because Christ has entered. He has won the victory. Therefore, we march on. We continue to push back the darkness in joyful submission to Christ our King. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the great truths of David and Goliath, Father. May we all be encouraged to, to, to act like David, sure, to be encouraged. This is a story that we would want to model. But Father, it's a story that uh, tells us more about Jesus and it tells us about ourselves. But it does show us how to live in a world where Christ does reign and he is secure. May we shout for joy and push back all the remaining enemies of God in the spiritual places. May we kill the sin in our own hearts. Not because we're losing something, but because we have a great king who loves us, who understands us, who died for us. Father, I pray you would invigorate all of our hearts. Maybe we'd be encouraged in the good news that Christ has already won the victory. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.